0: From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. That's Chamberlain.
1: He's got it. Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike.
0: To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is on there celebrating. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win. Yes! LeBron, James and rings were handed out like candy. It's Duncan Dynasty, with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bouguet, and with me this week... He's a regular on the program. His Twitter handle is at Corbin NBA. He's the host of the NBA Today pod, which he just started uh, just a few weeks back. He does a terrific job with that. That is on the Hoop Ball Network, and that's hoop-ball. And uh, he also does some, some content on that site as well. His name is Corbin Ford. Corbin,
1: thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me again, Garrett. It's fun to be on the show, as
0: always. Now, uh, we, uh, I may be uh, you know, releasing these episodes at different times, but we did just get finished recording our, uh, our top ten Marvel shows. That was a lot of fun. Uh, but uh, we also had uh, coordinated on a little bit of a project to, uh, to do for, for all of you listening to, to keep you entertained during this NBA hiatus. And uh, we decided to to look at a a classic NBA series, watch some of the games, and and then get together and talk about it. And the series we decided upon, and this was, uh, you know, uh, mostly Corbin's decision, but I was all for it, is the 1984 Eastern Conference quarterfinals, or the first round, between the New York Knicks and the Detroit Pistons. So, Corbin, first, before we get into anything with the actual series... I'm curious why this series in particular was appealing for you to go back and and watch. Well, I figured with so much of, you know, people
1: now watching, you know, the 2016 finals is a classic for people to look at right now during this hiatus or, you know, um, the more recent ones with the Kobe Lakers and such. I was like, going back literally almost 40 years now um, and seeing a series that played out when rules were different where three-pointers were not in, in vogue like they are now, when the play style was different, the way that teams went with their roster construction and and and, and game strategy was, was totally different. And also, you know, you also have that... that I don't want to say different again, but you have that, um, uh, lack of a word, difference in broadcasting, like you already mentioned. It's, 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 it's a time capsule type of game where you get to watch the same game that we all love, but from a totally different perspective, given that it was so long ago. And you have games ago that have changed where you know 10 years from
0: Absolutely, and actually, the first thing I have on my notes is to discuss some of the rural differences. So we can we can just jump right into that. One of the first things that immediately I noticed was that there's only two referees on the court uh, back in 1984 instead of three, which uh, you know makes their job not only tougher, but it also makes, uh, in my mind, it's almost an impossible task given you know, how much ground just two refs have to cover on a basketball court. Yeah, that's a lot, and it makes a lot of the calls,
1: along with the way the time clock was structured, different and in some ways more difficult to measure, particularly in close games, end of clock situations, end of halves, and things like that, where, you know, or in transition, especially with two refs, where you're right, and it like these refs were the, the fleetest of foot, they are pretty quick for their age,
0: but yeah, um, uh, another rule that you briefly mentioned was the the whole idea of um, you know you can't you couldn't play zone back then, and uh, that was in part due to the illegal defense rule, which essentially prevents defenders from you know leaving their man to go double team if they're not essentially one player away, and uh, I don't know if I'm describing that accurately, but um, it, uh, it it. it it, it makes double teaming very challenging. It obviously makes zone defense, um, you know, not possible. So it does very much change the way the game looks and feels and is played. And, uh, you know, I, I saw one play, you know, that the New York Knicks were, uh, you know, for a lot of this series were, were running full court traps. And at one point they had a, a player trapped at half court and they got called for an illegal <laughs> defense. Wow, that isn't that, That's crazy. Just the way that that rule is, and the hard and fast way they played it. Because that that's exactly what it's like. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. It it uh, it wow. was it was a really, despite the fact that as you said, it's bordering on forty years ago. Uh, it, it was a pretty fast paced series. It was a fun series to watch. One of the one of the other things, just in terms of how the referees you know, performed in this. I noticed a lot, a lot more of the three-second violations called, a lot more travelings called. Uh, and, and, and the way offensive fouls were called is completely foreign to me based on how I've, I've grown to, to watch the game now. You know, you see a lot of players on, on the offensive end jumping into the defenders to create contact or to, to avoid a shot blocker, get into their body. But back in 1984, that straight up just was not allowed. I mean, I saw numerous occasions where guys, even just the hint of them jumping towards the defender was an immediate offensive foul. Well,
1: I loved it. You're right. Like, that hunting for those shots would not happen. Where now is that obligatory go to the line. You know, if I hop into you as you're coming down, Oh, I'm getting my free throws. Where then it was like, no, we we're not having that. And you're right. It was a totally different game. I mean, for one, I know we're going to talk about this more, but the floor was so cramped. There was no stretching there. I'm stretching for them was a, a you know, a long ball, like John Long. It's like, that's that's like a free throw line jumper. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was crazy to kind of see that. You're right, and the rules changing in that way. Everyone in the post, second and third efforts, a lot more rough and tumble, but you're right. They weren't giving you outs like that. Like, no, when you got to the line, more than likely, especially in this series, you earned that trip. And I don't mean to say it's like glorify or Man's size are rough and tumble. Uh, more potential for injury type of game back then, but they weren't rewarding easy things, or not easy things, but like bail-out calls, I like to call them, where you do something like that. You know, that that wasn't what you were getting in this playoff series or in many of those games back in
0: the 80s. Yeah, that that was really refreshing. And, and back to your, your three-point comments, I mean, we uh, we both watched essentially games three, four, and five of this series, and it was, a, it was back in the time where the first round was best of five. And out of those three games that I watched, I would say there were maybe eight three-point attempts <laughs> um, and, and, and maybe like two or three that actually went in. I mean, that's what the kind of drastic stuff we're talking about. That that happens in the matter of just a couple of minutes in today's game, and we're talking about watching three games where those sort of numbers were put up. So, yeah, definitely uh, not, not much of an emphasis on the three-point shot. And, of course, this was just... Just several years after the three-point line was even put in. Exactly,
1: just a short four years right after. And you're right in that entire five-game series. uh, The Knicks went five of fourteen from three. Period. And (laughs) the Pistons went two for nine from three. And the only two makes were by one player in the same game, and that was Isaiah Thomas in that game that we're going to talk about. So it was insane to see that that was not at all, not even a thought of oh, let's get um, a three-ball in there, let's get open three. It was like only. When absolutely necessary, we're down three, we're shooting the three ball type of thing. And what was crazy to me, just looking at um, the Knicks, that whole season, and this is in comparison, um, the team uh, in total made 47 three-pointers. So in the Knicks that season, 1983, 1984, and then by comparison, like, Gorgie Jang, I mean,
0: I love that you picked Gorgy J for that. That just, uh, that's perfect. you mentioned the the totals for both teams over the course of the series and and I would I would guess to say that at least half of those came, you know, once it got down to about a minute left in the game and you're down like nine to 12 points and there's literally no way to come back without hitting those threes. So it seemed like teams, Teams understood the math when it literally, like, was staring at them in the face, but they they couldn't comprehend the idea that uh, oh, in the first 47 minutes of this game, maybe that math helps also. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right because um, that
1: that it, it, even the shots that they took, you could tell, you know, a three point shot when there's time on the clock, a, a um, a ATO or something that makes sense to get a fly one shot. No, these guys are taking the ball. We were chucking it, you know, it's like when you spam the shot button, you know, accidentally at the end of the game, and it was like one of those hurls. Like, these shots were not, the one who took what looked like proper three-point shots in terms of, okay, I'm planning to shoot the three, and that's mostly because he had like, a nice-looking jump shot. What was is Isaiah Thomas? All the other threes that I remember, like, keeping note of were just kind of chucked up. You're right, like, we gotta get up. Let's throw it up to the rim
0: from the three-point range and hope it goes down, you know? Yep. Uh, and, and all the, uh, let, let's move on to the, 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 TV presentation and the broadcast because the, the first thing that, that you mentioned when you said like teams just throwing them up, the broadcasters, I, I loved their reaction. Every time a three went up, it was just like the, the worst in their mind. It was the worst idea ever. Oh, that's a terrible shot. <laughs> you know Oh, wow. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, one of the first things, you know, I, uh, I actually, in, in game three, the video I watched was through the, the New York Knicks local television feed. Then game four, I watched the Pistons local television feed. And then game five was, was national TV coverage. But one of the things I noticed in those local broadcasts was that the camera was zoomed in way too far. To the point where, to the point where you know you can really only watch the ball, and you know I have spent uh, quite a few years you know kind of training my eye to to focus on off-ball actions. But with uh, you know these broadcasts, it, it it forces your hand to to watch the ball, and I guess you can you can sort of see why people get into that habit is because uh, even the the camera operators were were telling you this is what you should be looking at. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it's, it's
1: like it was steering you to watch the game that way. Because you're right, There was, I was trying to see off-ball action just to see how it was back then. Off-ball screens, obviously, you're freeing for what type of shot. The bigs are usually banging the glass. So if like they got some guys, especially the Pistons, you know, give it an IT or maybe a, you know, going around screens and then get out of the way and crash the rim. So it was definitely interesting to kind of see that. You're right. Like, some of the the, the television um production side was, yeah, we're just going to be.
0: The ball up, and then boom. Yeah. So, like, when when the guy had the ball at the top of the key, you couldn't see the near side corner, and, and vice versa. Uh, and and I guess you know you were talking about the the fact that players didn't space out. I, I think that actually um, maybe was is part of the reason why the camera has been zoomed out nowadays is because you've got the guys across the entirety of that half court area. Uh, to to look at so but yeah that was something that immediately was kind of off-putting about watching the game at that time but uh, i also got a kick out of a couple of things uh from a from a visual presentation standpoint uh instead of you know uh a uh, actual like motion replay to go into a commercial. It was always like a lot of still images, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, <laughs> which is really funny. And then also I noticed a few times the people at the scores table holding up like actual ma- uh, man-made signs to indicate who committed a foul. <laughs> right. Like the, that.
1: And again, those were, those were interesting. Just the whole interaction off of that was, was very much, um, I, I want to say brick and mortar,
0: just the way that they kind of like, 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 really went through the process of an NBA game, much less a playoff game. You know. Yes, um, and uh, you know the seeing the different broadcasts was kind of fun too, because on the on the Detroit local side, George Blaha was doing the game, and of course he's still doing it in twenty twenty. And again, you mentioned oh, this is nice. basically forty years ago, so yeah. uh, and he's still one of my favorites to listen to on League Pass. Uh, and then uh, on on the national TV side, you'd have you've got Marv Albert doing the game, and, and he's still going on TNT. <laughs> One is aged a little bit better than the other. It feels sometimes that Marv is still in the 80s when you know you see Isaiah Thomas um, take a three pointer, and then Marv will go and Bradley Beal with the foul line jump shot. <laughs> yeah, that's what you get now. <laughs> you weren't getting it back then. Marv was
1: on this game, but you're right, longevity wise, I'll take Waha.
0: Yep. Um, but yeah. So. So that was kind of just my initial thoughts of of the production side of things and and my initial reaction to to the game in general but let's get more into the nitty-gritty of this series and I uh, just wanted to to get into the the stats of some of these teams. The Pistons uh, finished the regular season at 49 and 33. They finished as the 4 seed in the Eastern Conference. They were first in the NBA in offense, so this isn't the bad boy Pistons that uh, many of you are familiar with in the late 80s. This is more of an offensive team, uh, and they were actually 16th, so uh, you know, basically average on the defensive end. And then the New York Knicks were kind of the opposite. They finished at 47 and 35. They were the five seed in the East. They were 13th in offensive rating and actually first on the defensive end. So, uh, you know, a, a really fun clash of styles in this matchup. Yeah, no, it really was. I
1: definitely thought it was interesting in how those two teams played so different going in. And you're right, like, you know, was, um, styles make fights, and between the Pistons and the Knicks, there was definitely two different ones on there. Uh, you can even see the beginning of, like, a backcourt
0: or, or jump shooting focus with the Pistons just by their personnel, you know? Right, um, you know, with the likes of, uh, of John Long and Isaiah Thomas and then also Vinny Johnson off the bench. Um, so, you know, you had some of those guys that, you, that you're familiar with, with the bad boys, Thomas Johnson and, of course, Bill Lambeer on the Pistons roster uh, in 84. But, uh, you know, looking at the, the first couple of games of this series, and, in fact, you mentioned you actually got to see a little bit of a highlights of the end of Game 1. That one came down to the wire, and the Knicks won at ninety four ninety three. I didn't actually get to see this, so I'll I'll leave it to you. But what I did hear was the fact that Daryl Walker, a, a rookie guard for the New York Knicks, had seven steals in Game One, and and had a couple down the stretch that kind of stole the game and and really changed the series. No, he was he was definitely a block off. He was a shot on
1: in the arm for the Knicks off the bench. Because you're right, those seven steals to go along with um. A team high seven assists and 13 points off the bench was great, and you know, he's back at this point. Um, the starting guards were Rory Sparrow and Ray Williams for the Knicks. Um, and uh, Ray Williams was a solid guard, he had a horrible night. Um, on game one, he went 0 for 6 from the field, only managed five assists and about five turnovers as well. But Dallas Walker not only did that, he was attacking aggressive. Um, what's funny about him is that a little bit after this, he would later play for Detroit in 1992. Um, and ninety three, which I thought was hilarious, before ending his career with the Bulls, uh, going out with the rings. That's cool, but no, he was um, he he definitely made some impactful moments, and I think was a big reason a big reason why the Knicks were able to slow down Isaiah Thomas in that game. Who uncharacteristically he kind of got he increased his scoring average. I think that was game three where there was a low, but every game after this he like definitely was raising up his level of play. But in game one it was not a game um, for him. Forty two minutes, he had ten.
0: get to Bernard King shortly, but uh, you know, that that game one win for New York, especially in a best of five, which goes, you know, the the team with the higher seed, which was the Pistons, gets the first two games at home. Then games three and four are, uh, you know, we're in New York. And then uh, of course, game five, the decisive game back in Detroit. So the fact that the Knicks took one on the road and and stole it essentially really, uh, you know, is a big boost especially in that best of five. Game two, though, Detroit comes back and, uh, and takes it 113-105. Again, I didn't see this game, but uh, did you have any thoughts on this one? Um, I was able to get a clip of it, like one of those um, retro,
1: I think his name is retro basketball clips or something, where we kind of had a condensed version of it. And yeah, I mean, that one, it was a matter of, at least for the piss side of it all, uh, I, I, again, one, Isaac Thomas raising that level of play was, was solid for them. Um, but then two, I think one guy who, um, I guess... He got he got some love, but not really in this series. Who absolutely exploded for that game to win with Bill Lamb.
0: key factor in the series and and I think the Knicks did a pretty good job again using their size with you know they would post up Bill Cartwright they'd post up Bernard King and and really attack Lambert and they got him in foul trouble on numerous occasions Uh, and and yeah as soon as Detroit takes him out they get really small and as you mentioned the Knicks can can just keep that size on there with uh, with Marvin Webster. But uh, yeah, I wanted to just uh, start to get into kind of the, the players and the coaches involved in this series and, and kind of break them down a little bit. Um, the, the, first off, I wanted to get your take on the coaching matchup. We've got two coaches that I think most NBA fans would be familiar with. Chuck Daly on the side of the Pistons. Of course, he was the coach that, that took them through to those uh, back-to-back titles in 89 and 90. Uh, and then also on the Knicks side, of course, the legend that is Hubie Brown, uh, so, you know, how did you feel about, uh, of those two guys, and, and how did you think they fared from a coaching perspective?
1: I have to first comment on Hubie, Hubie Brown, because one, who doesn't love that guy? Again, talk about NBA guys who are still going strong in their, um, i is just way too dark, let's just say in their advanced NBA careers, <laughs> strong, um, but for the next, Hubie Brown was so solid, and because, I hear, I heard, even though he didn't really, you know, aside from one interview I think I caught, he didn't really talk too much. I just heard his voice, you know, just every time it cuts him. It was just so weird. But he played, you can tell, you know, I, I can't do I can. I can do a horrible impression. I'm not going to try to do it. He was trying to use that size of the Knicks. He was trying to play through Bernard King. When they had a chance to go on the break, he was doing that. Defensively, you know, they were a stout defense. Uh, I think they were third in defensive rating or uh, opponent's points per game. Um, So you knew, you know, You know. if you hear QB um, Brown, you know it's velocity, You know where the bread is butter.
0: of the two coaches, obviously the Pistons and Chuck Daly trying to play really fast and, and Hubie Brown also liked to, to run that full court it looked like a 1-2-2 press um, that, that, that was pretty interesting and it, it was fun to see Isaiah Thomas try to dribble around that and through that and, and, and dissect that defense but it also, I think at times, worked for them to, to create some turnovers and also to, to slow them down and force the Pistons into the half court which I think was to the Knicks' advantage. Um, but, you know, seeing some of the half-court sets was really interesting as well. You know, I saw I saw Detroit run some some split-cut action with, you know, kind of like what the Warriors do and, uh, you know, with Lambeer acting as the the role of Draymond Green catching the ball on the block, acting as a passer, and then you'd see guys like Isaiah Thomas and, and uh, Kelly Trebuca screening for each other and doing that split-cut action, so that was neat to see. And then, you know... The Knicks were, you know, Hubie Brown's offense was was pretty simple, but it's because he had a superstar in Bernard King, but they would, you know, run a lot of cross screens for him to get him the ball, and then they'd have this nice set where if, uh, you know, if the defender guarding King would, uh, you know, start to cheat and get over and anticipate that cross screen, they would just throw the lob to King where he stood. Uh, so they they right the yep. So they had nice little counters uh, t- as well to defenses trying to take away King on the block. So it was yeah. It was it was really fun to see those teams and, and those coaches go at it. Oh yeah, you're right. That that that
1: chess game was great. And you're right in comparison to around that offense, the Pistons were you know on the upper upper end of the spectrum. The third in offense and points per game. You know uh, fifth in pace. Uh, first in offensive rating that year. You know, they kind of were the opposite of the Knicks where the defense was just enough. They were 16th that year in defensive rating um, and 18th in opponent's points per game. But you're right. They knew where their bread was barred offensively.
0: could see why they were so good on the offensive end i mean for for that era i would say they had pretty good spacing obviously at center with lambeer he could step out and he's a pretty good shooter uh you know even even benson as you even as benson you mentioned could could step out and shoot a little bit john long and tripuca were solid shooters and, and you mentioned, you know, at, at times Thomas would get it going, but I think, uh, you know, I was overall impressed with Isaiah Thomas watching this series, but but I would say, you know, he almost uh, was a little bit disappointing to me in terms of his outside jump shot, especially in the half court. It seemed like for good chunks of games, he just couldn't get anything to go from outside. You know what, I could definitely
1: see, especially early. Those first couple of games in the series, it was weird looking back, and again, I only have clips, so it's hard to get a real feel for the whole game. But it was almost like, I don't want to say it was a, a lack of confidence and a hesitant to really get himself going because you can just look at the shot attempts and go, okay, he wasn't getting it there. I thought later on he was a little more confident taking those shots, but I think a lot of it was just, his shots weren't exactly a high percentage, you know, um, at least in my opinion, the ones that he was taking off the dribble or, or, or just in general that, you know, at forward time at least, it wasn't consistent. And that was one thing about his shot that, I don't know. I, I, for whatever reason, whenever I see uh, Isaiah Thomas play offensively and everything, I really think of Allen Iverson. Like, the shooting percentages kind of, they don't, they don't like, the impact offensively, and then you look at the shot, shooting percentage, like, oh, that's not great. You know, even though the shot doesn't look bad, if anything, like I said, I really enjoyed IT's jump. But you're right, it didn't really go down nearly enough. Um, I just thought, for the for the series, I'm trying to see, IT, Isaiah Thomas, what was the stats here? His effective field goal percentage was 48% over those five games. Not super great. Uh, he, he just didn't really have – it was weird for him. I mean, he shot 30, 47% from the field, high volume um, as far as getting his shots up. Uh, not as much as who really took the lead offensively for them that year. And I think that it, it, was a, it was a matter of Isaiah kind of understanding his role. He was getting to that lead dog, alpha dog status for the Pistons, but I don't know if he was there quite yet. But you're right. I mean, going thirty nine to eighty three, you know, a lot of missed jump shots down the stretch. Um, it wasn't until the last two games I thought he did really, really well. Um, specifically getting shots to go down, and even then, it, it was it was
0: with a lot of uh, attempts. You know what I mean? Right. Um. I I think wa- watching Thomas, you know, there's of course I think a lot of people when they think of Isaiah Thomas, they they look back at that. Uh, performance in the in the 1988 finals with the sprained ankle where he put up 25 points in a quarter just a legendary performance I think yeah. you know he was definitely a big game player he was a clutch player and when the game was on the line I felt a lot more confident about that jumper but for the first three quarters not so much but uh, uh, but but we can't really uh, go much further uh, in talking about this series without bringing up Bernard King and this guy, was just, I mean, just sensational. I mean, the guy averaged over 40 points per game for the series, and it may still be the the high mark for most points in a five-game series in NBA history. For those of you that uh, haven't really seen Bernard King, as you mentioned, he's six seven. he's very strong, he's got a lot of muscle, he's tough to push off his spots. You know, they would post him up about 10 feet away on either block, and... He really didn't have much of a weakness, you know. He could turn around over either shoulder. He's got a very quick release, incredible touch. You know, he seemed to always get the friendly roll, Um, and and you know he had counters to those those uh, those moves as well. You know, if you overreacted to that turnaround, he would then just uh, you know basically do an up and under with the turnaround and drive past you. And he could also just do a quick one or two dribble. Um, move if you were pressed up on him too much, uh, going either direction. And of course, he could finish with ferocity with, uh, with either hand. So yeah, the guy was just sensational. He's even a solid outlet passer. I didn't think his defense was exceptional, but I didn't think it was terrible either. The guy was just an unbelievable player. And frankly, even with Isaiah Thomas on the court, he was easily the best player out there.
1: King had that season was just amazing. I mean, right too two, I think, with the Eastern Conference Finals against the Celtics, I want to say, um, he was on fire. And you're right, you already mentioned his game so well. I felt like he had like a Draymond Green as body type, like stout and strong, but with like a Kawhi Leonard type of game inside the three point line where you weren't getting off his spots. I mean, he wasn't, you know, he, he was.
0: I think he averaged close to, you know, he, I already mentioned he averaged over 40 a game against the Pistons. I think he averaged close to 30 yeah. against the Celtics, with against, as you said, Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale and Larry Bird. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Stop yeah, and the other thing that really impressed me, and we can go back a little bit to that whole illegal defense rule and how it was tougher to double team at that time, but I think another thing that set him apart was how decisive he was as soon as he caught the basketball. Uh, as, as soon as the ball was entered into him to the block, he was either, you know, immediately going into that turnaround jumper or immediately putting the ball on the floor and getting past his defender. There was no, you know, um, the, the, like a Charles Barkley where he's just dribbling and slowly backing in, you know, and letting that defense react. He just is constantly making that immediate decision, which makes him all the more difficult to double and, and of course, stop. Yeah,
1: he was very, like you said, decisive with the ball. He wasn't messing around. He wasn't a point forward in that way. He was getting the ball. He can kind of pass it out, but that ball was going up. And his shot was so nice. I mean, especially those turnaround um, shots from either baseline. Just to make get the ball, gather, turn, shoot one fluid motion. And it was so pretty. And, and I mean, that was his reliable. And like you said, he was still able to space it out, you know, at least for his time out to the foul line area, just a little farther than that. Everything between that three-point arc but unstoppable nonetheless in all of that. And, I mean, you said if the Celtics had no way of doing it, you said average 40 against the Pistons, the Pistons did not have a single defender that was able to stay in front of them. This was pre-Dennis Rodman, pre-John Sally days, to have those type of guys they could throw up. But not that, you know, who knows how that would have mattered, historically speaking, just because he kept doing his high-scoring ways uh, before injuries kind of took over. But you definitely weren't stopping with the likes of uh, Kelly Chupuke and John Long. And Cliff Levingston, that wasn't his heavy game at the time. You know, He was kind of defensive energy guy. But they, they didn't really have a good, ideal match to put on them. And as you can
0: tell by scoring averages, just watching the game, it, it really showed. Yeah, his his only weakness that I really noticed um, is, you know, I, I think he, he didn't seem to be the, the cleanest ball handler. Again, I mentioned, you know, he, he could do one to two dribble moves pretty pretty well but you know you'd see occasionally where he'd get a steal and have to dribble the length of the court and he'd be you know you know the ball would be behind him essentially so uh, it, it's weird to think though you know well if he played if he played in 2020 though instead of 1984 he'd probably be more of the Giannis type where he would be the point forward as opposed to having to rely on you know guards having to get him the basketball uh, and, and, of course, he probably would extend that range as well. You know, he, he was a decent free-throw shooter and, and, and could hit those standstill jumpers.
1: Exactly, yeah. You're right. You said yourself. Like, again, it's funny to see how these type of guys would have translated in modern times just with that type of game. Because you're right, some more thoughts stuff in this game would be great. If, I, I hate to be like Giannis and said, if Bernard had a three-point shot, look out. But, I mean, let's think about it. Like, you know, it, it, it would be crazy to think about the type of offensive arsenal he would have. Because that type of play, you know, it does transit. It wasn't like he was taking too long. He knew what his moves were. He was too physical for some guys. He wasn't um, deterred by larger length or larger bodies. And, yeah, you said it yourself. Like, breaking down the ball handling for that time was sobbing from him. And, you know, a, a lot of guys, I guess, they really had them more stereotyped into roles. So it's hard to see um, a, a subset of attributes across certain types of players back then. You know what I mean? You, you're scoring uh, small forward. You're a rebounding center. Oh, you can stretch the floor a little bit. That's cool. You know what I mean? You really have a lot of those guys that had multiple, um, attributes across the board where they could shoot three on one end, space the floor on the other, um, or shoot three on one end and then, uh, room defend on the other, or be a three and D forward. You know, it was really like a 20 footer and average D kind of guy. You know what I mean? It was interesting. Um, even guys like, and I hate to go on the side, but uh, Rodney McCray is someone I always think about who was like a point forward in a way in the late eighties and early nineties, um, um, it just didn't really you know it's kind of like a, a jack of all trade kind of thing. I seem like a Billy Owens, but I'm going too far, but yeah. It'll be interesting to see how those guys
0: would have uh, had their game translate into the modern era. You mentioned the the scoring forward type um, uh, as far as like roles in the in the 80s and the Pistons had that in Kelly Trapuca, and I wanted to talk about him a little bit because you know he was a guy that I was very unfamiliar with heading into this series. Of course, I'd heard of him before but hadn't really gotten to watch too much of him play. What were your impressions of, uh, of Kelly Tripuca?
1: So I actually had a little experience on him, just because of one of my first books I ever read, I have a, a huge basketball library now, but one of the first books I had was um, a 1988 pro basketball handbook by Xander Hollander, which I read like religiously, and at the time, you know, he was a 29-year-old who had just been uh, let go from the Utah Jazz in the expansion draft and picked up by the Charlotte Hornets. And he was coming off for a bad year, and it was like, oh, he was, the, the, the going back then was that like he was too soft, um, was just a guy who, like, played, like, got jump shots offensively, was there, gave you nothing defensively. Um, didn't really give you too much from, like, a offensive standpoint as after putting the ball in the hole. And he was really just, like, a jump shooting small forward. Um, then he had a renaissance here in Charlotte. But that, that backdrop was what already led me to kind of know or think I knew happened then for Detroit, like, what, he, what type of player he was. But, I mean, that season he averaged 21 points. He was coming off the season before where he averaged 26. He had a really good jump shot, um, decent three-pointer. I mean, that, the 20, in the year that the playoff series, he was did not have a great year shooting the three. But just before that, on the admittedly low volume, he shot 37% from three, and he could shoot. And that was kind of it. You had a lot of uh, screen action, a lot of ball movement to get in the ball. Um, you know, all of those shots were to manufacture around the free throw line and in, but he had a nice jump shot that translated well with distance. And so that was it. You know, he could finish around the rim okay. Um, it wasn't really a quote-unquote driver. Uh, and defensively was next to nothing, but I figured I, I want to know how he was able to get his shots in that time. You know what I mean? And it was interesting to see that as a as a shooter. You know, he's pretty solid
0: out there. Yeah, he is six six, so he had that bit of a tweener on the offensive end where, uh, you you said you know he wasn't much of a driver, but he occasionally you know if he got a center guarding him, he could he could attack off the dribble. He had a couple of shots that was uh, one I remember where he, he drove left and, and had a, a right-handed scoop shot off the glass that went in uh, that was, was pretty impressive. But then, you know, he his go-to move seemed to be on the block, that uh, that turnaround over the right shoulder. He went to that a lot off the glass. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was a really tough move to stop, especially, you know, if if the Knicks had one of their backcourt guys, one of their guards, on him, he could he could just shoot right over the top. Yeah, that, that
1: dexterity, that shot was true. A lot of people it seemed like that shot was in their arsenal. You know what I mean? Like not not that not his shot specifically, but the away shot
0: as as a shot in itself. You know? Yeah, and and utilizing the the backboard more than I think a lot and, of players do.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it was if like they were trained to do that. You're right, because you had those shots off the glass or so those little bankers on the side. You know, and only I the modern time will use it who used it that much was Tim Duncan. That was, you know, his famous kind of bank shot. A lot of it is trained not to do it that much. It feels like, um, I wouldn't really know exactly that, but just in terms of having a shot that you could go to automatically. And for him, you're right, with a lot of that over-the-top type of shots, especially, like you said, when he was cross-matched on with like a Ray Williams or a Rory Sparrow, who really had no hope to kind of stay in front of him, at least I mean, stay in front of him, but, but to defend the shot when he had a significant size advantage over
0: Yeah, I I feel like a lot of his, you know, he averaged over 30 a game in this series, so he, you know, did a really good job scoring the basketball for the Pistons, but I feel like, again, you know, thinking about what these guys are in today's game, uh, he seems to me much more of the um, likely the guy that just stands in the, you know, stands off the ball and is just a spot-up, really good three-point shooter. Uh, A lot of the a lot of the post-up play at 6'6", given, you know, he didn't have a left hand, he didn't really seem to, he seemed very predictable that he was just going to go to that same move over and over again. You know, you talk about the average wing in the NBA being like, you know, six, about his size, and if they've got that scouting report, I have a hard time believing he's going to be as uh, productive of a scorer in today's league.
1: No, you're right. It it would definitely be interesting to see because that game did not translate super, super well, so... You definitely
0: have that, right? And for one, I mean, forget that. The hair didn't translate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the hair was not doing it, you know what I mean? Right. And, uh, yeah, you. I mean, you can tell. I think, like, um, just going through the the decades, you've got not only the hairdos, but just the names. Uh, you know, you've got in the 50s and 60s, you got guys named, like, Bill Sharman. Um, you know, very, very white names and like a, a <laughs> Kelly, Kelly Tribuca. Uh, you're, you're not hearing anybody with a name like Kelly Tribuca in 2020. Um, no, And here it comes. <laughs> Kelly Tri- I mean, Mark Albert might say it now, you know, getting a mix with Pat Connington. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, uh, the, another guy I thought was, uh, you know, very vital to, uh, to the Knicks was uh, Bill Cartwright, and a lot of people are probably familiar with him due to the fact that he was a, a starter for those uh, you know, those Bulls teams, that first three-peat for Michael Jordan. And uh, you know, Bill Cartwright, he's got that really funky-looking jump shot, uh, but, but that guy can play, and, and especially in this time, I think he's, he's a lot more effective than even what you saw or what most people are familiar with in his Bulls days. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for
1: one, I don't even think he was, I don't want to say marginalized as a role player, but he was definitely a guy outside of Bernard King who the Knicks went to repeatedly and had a nice little treasure trove of moves down low and a really good faraway jump shot to everybody in that funky release. Um, and we all knew it from his free throw shooting. But it was, it was a nice looking shot. Like, I remember moments going, wow, you know, the Pistons really don't have anyone to stick Bill Cartwright and going, wait a sec, I'm talking about that Bill right? You know, who didn't have the greatest of hands from well, Michael Jordan passes and what's constantly getting yelled at, you know, that Bill Clark, but yes, like, medical bill is what they call it. It's because he's injury-ridden. But let's not forget that, you know, as a player back then, he was pretty solid, very, very solid. Like you said, he's a nice um, guy you can got to get the ball down to, who carried the Knicks for stretches offensively when Bernard wasn't in there. Uh, and then during those years, I mean, you know, high team score. His first two years he averaged over 20 points a game or 20, and then by 84 at that point, he was at seventeen, and then he had an injury that took him out all of uh, eighty-five, and then after that he kind of went down to like marginal levels, you know, that that kind of a uh, supporting cast player. But at the time, you're right, like, you know, he was coming with the he was third picked overall in the seventy-nine draft, kind of the high pick type thing going, had some sneaky good moves down there, and yeah, I don't think again talking about games that would translate well. I don't know if he'd be anything like. I don't want to compare Bell McGee or anything like that, but in sense of like body type, that's what it reminded me of. You know what I mean? But offensively, yeah. I think he was very, up, at least solid and competent
0: for that Knicks team, and just in general. you know. Right, and they would often, I think, stagger King and, and Cartwright, and, and there were moments, uh, even in that crucial Game 5, which we'll get to, where where King was in foul trouble, and and yeah, Cartwright was their go-to guy and kept them afloat in a crucial time. But yeah, he's a very solid player defensively. You know, I, I I thought he was solid. Although I was actually more impressed with uh, with the Knicks' backup center defensively, and Marvin Webster. And uh, I also just wanted to say, why doesn't the NBA have these awesome nicknames anymore? I mean, just going through this series, we had Leonard Truck Robinson, Marvin the Eraser Webster, Earl Earl the Twirl Curriton. And Vinny the Microwave Johnson. I mean, why did this go away?
1: Uh, you know what? I think now we have to go to Pro Basketball Reference and make up nicknames, and that's kind of the the trend that's in there. But you're right. Like having that spice. Maybe we should have. Um, you know, comment did such a good job in the All Star game. Maybe you can just throw out a few random uh, generated nicknames
0: for these guys. You know? Yes, I'm I'm all for that. Pay the guys some money to to spend some time working on that. But right? but we need
1: that back. You're right. When the NBA was famous.
0: <laughs> but yeah the uh some, some of the other guys that were notable in this series uh you know you, you already mentioned rick patino an assistant coach for the knicks ernie grunfeld was a, a bench player for the knicks of course he later became a, a general manager for the knicks and bucks and then the, the president of basketball operations for a, a long time with the wizards and then uh, even Louis Orr, uh, another backup for the Knicks, that got some time. He he ended up. Uh, he's been a longtime college coach, coached um, near where I am in Ohio at uh, Bowling Green State University, and and now he's an assistant coach at uh, Georgetown with Patrick Ewing. Wow, there you go, the reunion of old Knicks. <laughs> yeah, so so you know there there are a lot of uh, familiar names in this series, and and uh, we we already talked about Daryl Walker, Vinny Johnson again, a, another guy that. Uh, he, he seemed to be, um, you know, again, since I haven't watched a lot of basketball from the 70s, uh, he, he seemed to be one of the few guys in this series that was really utilizing the pump fake, especially from the guard position. Yeah, he was more in line with that Lou Williams type of
1: off-the-bench score that got better with age, that I remember. Yes. You know, if you're not even like Fowler, but you're right, he had a crafty game. I didn't even realize that at that point he was 27. By the time he won his championships, he was 30 ish, you know, in his 30s already, and still being a guy who got clutch buckets for the Pistons. But he's one of those guys that, you know, just had a really good second career in the NBA. Um, not that he never saw a career to begin with, but just in general, it's like longevity wise, to be someone who could get buckets for the guys in spots, really unleash that three guard lineup the Pistons used with Joe Dumars and Isaiah Thomas at times. But yeah, back then I was like, oh, wow, I thought we were seeing like a young Benny Johnson. But the time, he already been in the league for four years and was already 27. I was like, oh, wow. And to think that he got another eight years out of that, you know, a pretty decent play, knowing his role as that super sub six-man off the bench who gave you some points and a few assists, like I said, it reminded me of Lou Williams at the center getting like 15-something points, although Lou gets you more than that and
0: like three to five assists a game. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned playing well late into his career. He hit the, the basically the game-winning shot that sealed the, the Pistons' 1990 championship against the Blazers. So, you know, a guy that uh, continued to contribute late into his career. And, yeah, as you said, very crafty game. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Uh, if you'd like to support the show you can uh, you can subscribe to the program on iTunes if you can leave a uh, a rating and review that would be greatly appreciated as well uh, the show is also now on Spotify uh, if you can uh, give the show a follow again a rating on there uh, that uh, that really helps a lot if uh, if you've got any uh, questions or comments or uh, or ideas for uh, for future episodes uh, you can contact me uh, on Twitter at Garrett Bougay, and also uh, my email is g-bougay at onu.edu. So uh, feel free to uh, to uh, give me any of your uh, ideas. I, I love to hear from uh, from the people listening to the program. And uh, enjoy the next week of the NBA calendar. And uh, have a great rest of your day.